This episode is brought to you by everynowherehearmusic.com. That's my artist website. It's brought to you by holisticpianoacademy.com, which is my coaching and mentoring website. And it's also brought to you by tlwrites.com, which is my freelance writing service designed specifically for artists and creative professionals. It's a rare privilege to get to tick off as many boxes as we managed to on this particular episode. Adam Gregg's in a bit of a league of its own a very dear friend, an extremely esteemed colleague and uh, an iconic figure, to be honest, um, in the current musical landscape in India as this conversation will make more than apparent if you stick around till the very end. This is by far probably one of the most heartwarming, meaningful and provocative conversations I've had till now. We had a couple of provocative ones, but this one really kind of pushes the edges of this podcast and I'm very proud of it for having done so. Now we start off on the slightly academic note, don't let the somewhat dry nature of that fool you. Wait a few minutes before we head into a few more intense topics that I feel are extremely relevant to today's zeitgeist, both on a global and regional slash local scale. So without much further ado, Adam Gregg. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Hi. How are you doing today? I am doing much better from having had enough coffee now to be awake, but yeah, Speaking quite well. Of, I'm going to grab one of these. I think <laughs> you're my third in-person guest. Ooh. Yeah. Um, mo- most of these guests I've had the privilege of having on have usually been remote. Mm, and you're my third with whom I get to do this uh, in person. I'm not sure I told you, but uh, this podcast audio only. Yeah. And um, that's that's something we kind of consciously want to do. I say we, it's just me. <laughs> it's my contribution to uh, lesser screen time, especially after the past few years. I think we could all do with any, any kind of support on that front. This is actually uh, quite an honor having you on. I'm not just saying that. Um, there are so many qualities I am in deep admiration of that you embody uh, we've known each other for a while now, um, <laughs> and uh, usually I'll start off with a bit of a reminiscence on where I meet my guest. In our case, it was... Um, uh, you, uh, you, you see, now you can't remember, can you? <laughs> I can totally remember, but there seems to be slight haziness on the exact year. You you said 2012 last night? I, it was 2012 or 13. I mean, it, it was sometime around then. You were here doing... Uh, project a digital soundscape project yeah yeah um and you were working with some of our students that was that was a project with goethe and earthsync right right um and yeah i was still relative it was actually my early times working with goethe and earthsync too Mm -hmm. i think it was my first project i ever did with goethe so we sent a couple of our students along with others who were working with you and somebody else for, I think it was for a week. Robert Koch, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that was that was the first. 
Yeah, and I remember the, you being a very striking presence from from the very first minute in a very very positive way, and um, it was quite quite a quite a quite the eclectic project, by the way, with the Goethe Institute, the KMMC, and the India Exchange. Half the time, I wasn't really sure who I'm supposed to be. And none of us quite knew what actually was happening either. None of us really had an idea of what... It was one of those ones where it was like, do you have any students who want to come and work with people? And we're just like, okay, we'll just send... Go go work with them, see what it is. Nice. Um, the tri- and I happen to know from Robert as well, uh, who, by the way, is now based in LA and has gone major big time. And he was always like the insider tip for uh, uh, Germany and Berlin. Uh, but I also happen to know that there was an extremely expo- uh, important experience for him as well because he moved to, to LA right after. Like literally Chennai, Berlin, LA. So after that whole experience. So, uh, yeah, so much for the reminiscing. Let's talk about you. <laughs> how did, how did, um, how did a queer Scotsman land up in Chennai and end up mentoring an entire generation of some of the most talented Indian musicians? Oh my goodness. I just went for the juggler. Yeah, no, I? straight in there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of a two-part story um, on when I was 16 um, growing up in Scotland and it was in Scotland we kind of finished school early or half of the people do mm-hmm. given when we start school we're not really old enough to go directly from secondary school to university. Mm-hmm. So if I had progressed directly, I would have started university at 17, which you can do, but it's no fun. Um, so a lot of Scottish um, students take gap years. Gotcha. Um, and so we there were various people coming into the school to kind of talk about various gap year projects. And there was this group link overseas exchange that was a local group to the area and they came in (laughs) and um they ran projects across sri lanka india and nepal um and they were talking to it and one of the projects they ran was out of the drikun kagyu institute in Dehradun, which is a tibetan buddhist monastery wow um and I had just, in one of my other classes there, visited the Buddhist monastery in Scotland and spent um, three or four days there on a class project learning mm-hmm. about Buddhism mm-hmm. and thought, oh, that sounds like it could be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and next thing I know, I'd started fundraising to spend a year here um, in Dehradun alongside, I think there was 12 of my classmates who applied to the same charity for various projects around the country, not all in the same place. Wow. How old were you here? You were 16. 16. Yeah. Um, 16, 17 when I came here. Wow, that's a powerful um, initiative yeah. from a 16-year-old. Sounds like you had a very clear idea where you wanted your No idea to where I wanted no? to go. <laughs> um, and wound up in Dehradun for, and we, we taught English and science and maths in the monastery to the, the younger monks basically lived there for six months. There was four of us 
on the project there. And then part of it was that after that you got to travel the country for the remainder of your visa time. Nice. So at that point we made the mammoth journey um, from Dehradun all the way up to Dharamsala, back down to Delhi, through Mumbai, through Goa, through Kerala, um, across Pondicherry up to Chennai, from Chennai over to Pune, Pune to Bodh Gaya, Gaya, um, then Varanasi, Agra, and back to Delhi. Wow. All on train and bus. Wow. Um, and you're, you're 17 by now? Yeah. And uh. self-organized, self, like, there, th we weren't monitored or mentored or anything. We were just, like, That's going in and true. booking trains here and there, um, staying, staying wherever we could find places to stay. And it was that experience over that year, it really put me on path of the adult I became afterwards in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, Could you talk about the many ways? Well, it was just being able to um, being able to experience life and <laughs> I think it's, it's a really weird way of putting it, but just having to be self-sufficient, learn how to survive, learn how to to work out how to do things that you need to ex exist. Problem um, solving. Yeah. And it's like, we were here, we were here across 9-11. That happened while we were in country. We nearly got pulled out and we were like, no, we have no desire to get pulled out. Um, there were border tensions between India and Pakistan at that time also. There were mm -hmm. bombings in Delhi. Mm -hmm. um, Dehradun being right up central on a military base is like there were convoys of um, soldiers being sent north to borders and things at that point and parents and everybody outside of the country is like you shouldn't still be there and we were probably oblivious and naive to the situation we were in but we're just like we don't feel unsafe yeah um, intimately familiar with the feeling so we don't see a need for us to leave um mm. we were arrested at one point while we were in the monastery we again for not having the proper permits of being in the area we were supposed to be in at that point really <laughs> what kind of, what, i mean you were on your visas anyway so we what? were on visas yeah but the tibetan areas are refugee areas oh, right. um so that was yeah mm. um and just learning how to deal with these everyday living delights that India throws at you. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I hear you. It makes everything else much easier later. So did that. It was wonderful. It was life-changing. It was difficult. I was very ill for a lot of it, actually. Yeah? Um, yeah, I got very sick somewhere in South India. And I remember I had to spend a day in Pune in a hospital. No idea what was wrong with me. Horrified because like literally somebody was sucking blood out of my finger with a essentially a pipette and a straw. <laughs> um, gave me a pile of drugs, said I should probably be staying in hospital. I was like, yeah, we have a train to um, Gaia tomorrow, so I'm not staying. And yeah 36 hour train ride on goodness knows what drugs with what was wrong with me I had no idea wow. um 
absolutely emaciated skeleton when I got back to Scotland by the end of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> the only reason I'm not saying much is because I'm officially speechless. <laughs> that is quite the experience. I mean, what does one even say to that? But So how do you feel when you go back to Scotland? Oh, point. wonderful. It yeah. was it was a huge adventure. Um, yeah. Oh, so you, so look the looking back on Oh, everything. I mean, adventure. even all of the the difficulties and the hardships and everything that that happened throughout didn't detract at all from the actual it was a very very positive experience throughout. Amazing. So it didn't feel like something needed saving from no, it. No, 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 not at all. That's so refreshing. Um it it felt like life had happened basically on that side. There had been living going on. Um nice. And yeah, got back did another short backpacking trip actually after that before university I remember me and my friend Louise did a stint across Spain, Barcelona, Bayonne, Barcelona up to Donostia, along to Bayonne and back. So more travel fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then hit university um, in Lancaster in England, um, where I stopped and stayed for 10 years, actually, in Lancaster. Mm. Um, uh, that was a phase of your life I was not aware of. I didn't realize you lived in England for 10 years. Yeah. Um, so... Started off a degree in Bachelor of Science degree in computer science and music. Um, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Realized within that first year that I found computer science intensely boring. Mm -hmm. um, I did not get on well with the other people on the course. I did not enjoy sitting down solidly doing programming. But I very much enjoyed my music lectures, so ditched the computer science after first year and did the remainder of my degree in music fully. Gorgeous. Um, I was an awful student. My bachelor's years, I was dreadful. I did when not... You, but both in the science or, or and all the music or... Oh, everything. I yeah. didn't I didn't go to class. I didn't study. I didn't practice enough. I liked to party as a student. I mm. was out four or five days a week. I would quite happily send my lecturers emails at 3 a.m. in the morning going, I just got home. I am not making it to a 9 a.m. class. I'm sorry. How, how do you let your lecturers <laughs> react? <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, they were very understanding along the lines of, okay, thank you for letting me know, but stop doing that <laughs> okay. um it was I, I didn't need to mm -hmm. it's like i had i knew i had the capability to pass everything i needed to um without having to put in too much work and again at that point i really prioritized my social life more than my studying it, and i don't think I actually regret that that much. No, no, it doesn't sound like the kind of um, thing one ought to regret, actually, especially in light of the way things have been these past couple of years. Yeah. And again, I've, I've been plagued with kind of small world syndrome constantly. Hmm. Um, right throughout my life, it's the number of coincidences on, on that side have been chaos. Like, and I'm just remembering now one from uni, from my first year in uni. My neighbor on the dorms, two doors along from me, was the best friend of somebody who I was in India with when we traveled. Totally and randomly. Yeah, totally. Coming from a 
tiny little island in, off the coast of Scotland that only has a population of about like three, four hundred people. That's crazy, yeah. Um, and those connections have kept on coming back time mm. and time again throughout throughout my life. Um, but yeah, Lancaster, the I had such amazing teachers there. Um, back at the beginning, the, the core music faculty at Lancaster were some of the most giving and dedicated teachers that I've known. And I've based a lot of my teaching ethos on those that, that what they gave me and I didn't actually, I wasn't ready to receive at that point. Mm, another feeling. Can, um, we, can we talk a little about what this ethos, what that Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so... When I first started, it's um, Lancaster Department had historically been a early music specialist institute. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that when I signed up for it, <laughs> but that's what its its mandate had been, and it had been shifting away from early music. When I joined, it had just got music technology department the second year that I was there. So the this technology wing was new, which I had no interaction with. It was a separate course entirely. Mm -hmm. um, but they had a very broad range of lecturers um, who were so giving with their time and experience. Mm -hmm. um, I remember as an undergraduate, it was possible to basically just walk into the building, walk into their offices, sit down and have a chat with them, be it about studies or be it about anything else. And it, it was, it shaped me a lot as a student. They let me get away with a lot. They scolded me well when I needed it, if I had missed deadlines or things, but there was always a case of, okay, learn your lesson from it. Don't do it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's, that I found really important, but they never kind of gave up on you as a student. Yeah. My main one in particular, um, Professor Deborah Moore, um, she was the reason why I stayed there after my bachelor's. Mm -hmm. Because again, in the same way as when I was 16 and had no idea what to do, so went to India, bachelor's finished, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing next. I'm haven't yeah. actually studied anything. I don't feel like I'm trained for anything yet. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, postgraduate, do some further work, do some further research. She was a French musicologist specialist. Mm -hmm. I'd done well in her classes on Debussy, I'd done well in her classes on Ravel. As a pianist by that point, I'd shifted to performing mostly French repertoire. Um, and so she was like, stay, do masters. And again, she was very persuasive, <laughs> but yeah, I agreed and did another year doing my masters and focused and started working intensively with her because by that point it's, I think I was the only master student that year. So I was in a delightful class size of one. <laughs> that comes with its perks yeah and so got one-on-one -on -one attention and everything beautiful um still working performance and research based so nice. 
she took me on as a research assistant for her projects also. It sounds like it was the kind of environment you totally thrived in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Part of my master's project was to create an initial catalogue of the materials, 15 dusty boxes that had been like left underneath the concert hall stage and were like slightly... 15 boxes. Yeah, yeah. Slight- 15 boxes, people. Wrap your head around that for a bit. I mean, people... <laughs> Dedicate a lifetime to one box in certain cases. Yeah. That's 15, Jesus. And like unpicking and, and it was a very, very light survey of the works. Of, and this guy was a serious musicologist. It's, there were original magnetic tapes of Berg string quartets and things in, oh in among God. those. He had all of his correspondence. You had um, correspondence with Leonard Bernstein, all of the letters. And he had, I don't know what kind of person he was, but he had basically catalogued it all himself. So they were all alphabetized in folders and binders, all of his correspondence and research. Like you've prepared this for somebody to come along and write about you. Um, Right the way through to his um, fleeing Germany. Again, World War Two, he fled to the UK, um, mm-hmm. and all of the the passports and everything that it it, it was living history basically. Wow, so his passport was in there as well. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, was that a German passport? Yeah. Really? yeah. Yeah. Um. So that really hands-on living musical history wow. from really inspiring lecturers changed my perspectives on 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 working a lot Mm. and I went from an awful student at bachelor's level who did enough to survive and kind of pass through everything fine to working super dedicated in my master's year just that one year difference and cross-board distinction and everything on that yeah it 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 was personal intervention on the people who were working with me that basically transformed that Mm-hmm. And this was also the time that I started lecturing, which is very unusual. Not TA, not assistant. I actually was given lecture courses in my master's year to run, mm-hmm. um, which Deborah essentially mentored me on. And it's something that you don't get that often in university level where you have somebody teaching you how to teach. No. Um, and lectured there for the remainder of my time at Lancaster. So I had four or five years of guided teaching um, under, and she was a national teaching fellow in the, is, she's not dead. She's retired, but no. <laughs> um, So really, really key influence on how to shape lectures, how to plan, how to engage students. She gave me a lot of her teaching materials um, that that she used for that, some of which I still use today. Awesome. Um, and that, that gave me a kind of fundament in how to lecture, which a lot of lecturers don't get mm-hmm. um, because it's just not normal process on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, so master's done, PhD, chaos PhD. Yeah. <laughs> never ending never ending PhD the PhD where the masters taught me how to work intensively mm-hmm. the PhD taught me endurance on that side it's a very long slow process that you need to endure through 
Um, You're scaring me, man, because I'm actually about to head for one. Yeah, I know. My advice to anybody days. who's going for it at the moment is don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> How so? How so? Tell me more. It's it's yeah. traumatic. The PhD is a it's a traumatic experience. I can't think of many people that I know who have gone through that that haven't had trauma of some kind. Well, I mean, my trauma started at the diploma level already. Mm. <laughs> fact, it's actually been interesting for me going back to uh, school or college, university, because um, I'm working with a very progressive team, especially my uh, prof kind of guy I'd love to hang with. And uh, if I do do a PhD, part of my hopes are is to continue with, with him. So um, I feel like there is there, there are people out there trying to change that paradigm. And uh, at least that's what I'm hoping for. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Again, working with Deborah that intensively for that length of time uh, was beautiful. Okay. okay. But the, the process itself, the tape? not just the red tape, the actual, almost what the structure of a PhD has to be. Mm, the fact that, yeah. it, that you have to become a world expert on a very small topic area at a very deep level mm. you need to have the supportive team you need to have the amazing supervisor because what you're actually asked to do for it is traumatic <laughs> gotcha um if you don't have the other side if you don't have the supportive side no it's that's catastrophically traumatic mm. but yeah you go through the trauma and again it, it's a it is a building trauma on that side i would not have been able to do what i've done in india had i not done that there it you go. prepared there you go yeah that trade-off is always the trickiest to navigate isn't it i mean just how that is in alignment to your goals in life yeah is that in, so would you say it was it turned out to be in complete alignment to your goals in life would you go back and do it the same way i don't know it definitely wasn't in an alignment there is no connection between doing a doctorate on french musicology from the 1920s and the crossover between performance and analysis and moving to india and working in education here it's like i do the occasional lecture where i'm using material from that now but yes yeah, subject matter subject matter wise there's not a connection I didn't know what I was going to do with it back then. Mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't have done them back to back. I was far too young to do my PhD. How old were you? I started when I was 21. Jesus. That is like people start going to college. Or maybe 22, 21, 22. Oh my God. Yeah. That's a whole different league. Um, and it, yeah, it was too young, far too young. You started a PhD at 21. I finished writing it by 26. I moved here when I was 26. Wow. <laughs> yeah, let's let's get to that, moving here at 26. So, yeah, I know. Are, That's are, where we started this story. I don't know why. <laughs> no, we, 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 we try and be non-linear on this whole thing anyway. Um, kind of, so everyone has whatever they want to take away from it. Go for it. Finished, finished writing. Um, did my Viva. Again, that was another trauma. The had major corrections to write for the PhD, but nobody cares by that point. It's like the the main work is being done is just do the corrections and get them in whenever needed a job. Mm -hmm. um, and there was not a lot 
going in the normal PhD route into academia at that point. Um, I mean, I don't think there it's ever an easy transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't entirely certain that I wanted to go into a lecturing post. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd applied to be a peripatetic piano teacher in Scotland mm-hmm. and I'd interviewed and had been given um, that post. Um, and at the same point, I had seen that there was a job posting in Chennai in India for a piano teacher. Where did you find that job posting? That was done job website. Interesting. <laughs> because because KM had just signed its MOU with Middlesex University in London at that point, they were hunting for academics who understood the UK system. system. Gotcha. And so it was through them that I found it. Um, and I'd applied for it and I hadn't heard anything for four or five months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had got a, an email from, um, from Middlesex asking to interview me for the post. Huh. So I did an interview with Middlesex and then heard nothing for another two or three months from them. And then got an email from Chennai asking me to interview. Same thing, not a kind of second stage interview. It's just like, <laughs> would you like to interview? I was like, I thought I'd already done this. Um, Intimately familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and interviewed again for it. And again, didn't hear anything for maybe about three or four weeks. And then they were like, okay, we want you to come now. Sure, <laughs> Here's no the list of paperwork you need. Sure, no Get problem. your visa. We want you here by next month. <laughs> Next month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Was the paperwork easy though? Yeah, actually. It's the, well, yeah, the visa application part in terms of coming, relatively easy. It's It wasn't a strain then. It's, it's still not particularly a strain now to get. Mm. Registering the visa was another hand thing oh. that the once you've got it and you're here if you're here for longer than six months you have to register your visa that's slightly more painful very painful back then so, like a resident permit yeah gotcha. um but yeah so came as a piano teacher um arrived and it was it was so very 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 different from what it is now it it was chaos. I mean, I had no idea what I was arriving into. Mm-hmm. I'd done a one-day induction with Middlesex before coming, and they had no idea what I was arriving into really either. Um, but they kind of gave me the overview of what their course was, which made no real impact on what I was going to find when I arrived in Chennai and got here, and there was nothing. There was no staff really to speak of um no course no materials no properly developed syllabus at that point it was a case of okay everything starts in four or five weeks time there are some other staff who may or may not turn up we're not sure but regardless you're gonna have to start everything go wow (laughs) how many students were you dealing with in that first year, um, there were th- 
four year groups in that first year. Our course is only three, but there had been students who had joined from 2008. This was 2011. Mm. There were students who had joined in 2008 and nine who had joined before the course had been validated. Mm. So they had built in a bridging course for those students to complete what they needed to, to be given the validation and be able to progress to Middlesex. Right. So there was that, there was the normal final year students, there was Dip One and Foundation. So I think we had maybe about 50 or 60 students in that first year across all four batches. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, some of the faculty who had been um, with KM the year before did come back and did rejoin mm-hmm. just a few weeks after I had landed and been clueless so there, there was continuity so Kavita and Brian both came back then um, Anantha our percussion faculty was also faculty then um, quick question all the, all the students we were talking about they're local homegrown students or did you have international students as well we have had overseas students of Indian origin mm-hmm. We have, in my knowledge, on our full-time course at least, um, only had one non-Indian studying with us. Mm-hmm. But on, f- on your arrival, you were dealing with yeah, yeah. complete, well, you were banging the thick of it, yeah. dealing with local, I'm, I'm struggling for the words here. Well, cross-India, pan-Indian, pan-India okay. students. I um, mean, the, our students have always come from right the way across the country. Point being, the, this wasn't like a very, it isn't like like an elitist international kind of place where only... It can feel that way. It can. Um, okay. Unfortunately, the course fees that we have have always been very high mm-hmm. um, in comparison UK, to other sure. courses. And we offered some level of financial support where we can, but not enough to make it accessible to everyone. Gotcha. Not on the full-time course. Mm. We have other courses which do, but the full-time course, it's it's a hugely expensive course to run having a team of international faculty here. Exactly. But that means, I'm asking, I'm curious, because you know, when I look at the students, they are very, very homegrown. Very, mm-hmm. they, they don't... And correct me if I'm wrong, and my judgment on this isn't exactly the most accurate either, but they don't seem like they come from billionaire families either. Some. Some it, it, yeah. I mean, there, it, it's not just that. Okay. It's like there is definitely a diversity among the students' backgrounds um, mm-hmm. and that we are increasing year by year. Good. It's never as open as I would like it to be, and I don't know if it ever can be without us as an institution securing more funding for people who can't afford the courses. Um, But we've always been very open and help students where possible. Um, My directors don't want to have to exclude people that should be studying with us. Yeah, that's very apparent. That's Um, the feeling I get as well. That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Um, And I know it's a very fine... Very, very fine line to balance in a country like India, where, I mean, inclusion is just not as black as and white as they are, uh, as it is in, in a Western country. There's yeah. so many 
multi-layered factors that need to be taken into consideration. I mean, one of the one of the developments this year, which I have loved. I mean, we have one of our partnership projects, the Sunshine Orchestra project, is set up from the Arveman Foundation mm -hmm. to provide free music education for those from um, underrepresented and um, low economic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And this year, for the first time, we have three of those students who are studying on our full-time course. Awesome. Um, free. That's amazing. And there's always been some hesitation about that because for whatever reason, they didn't think those students would integrate into the main program. And I've always been saying, doesn't make sense, throw them in, they'll be fine. Mm -hmm. It's already a absolute mix through. Mm -hmm. They'll be fine. And they have been. They're loving it. They're doing fantastically on it. It's, but yeah, it's taken two or three years of us trying to say, yes, do this, do this for it to actually happen. Well, this is fascinating. What was the skepticism exactly revolving around? What were people worried would happen? That they wouldn't be able to follow the classes. So it was their intelligence that was being Well, skipped. language skills in some way. Again, our courses are all in English. Gotcha. So whether the English level would be high enough for them to get through the courses, mm -hmm. whether they would be able to integrate with the rest of the students. Mm -hmm. um, and also just from those students' family sides, mm -hmm. is it worthwhile them doing the course? Um, and that one we haven't managed to fully get through yet. All of those three students are studying at colleges at the same time as studying with us. Tell us a little more about the family side, because for people who are not familiar with yeah. Indian culture, they'd be like, hmm, what, 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 what so are you talking about? Essentially, these students are expected to get jobs relatively quickly to support the family mm. on that side. Mm. And music not being seen as a stable job. The entire Sunshine Project has always had this yeah, it's great you're providing them music lessons, but you're distracting them from their studies, you're distracting them from science, you're distracting them from math, you're di you're, is this going to be a career option for them? Are they going to be able to support themselves and us? You're messing with my retirement plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that discussion is it's all very well while the students are still in school and they're doing their music lessons in and around school but when it hits that time for them to do college then it's serious and it's like mm -hmm. okay we can give them our course and it's like other students would like die to actually just be given that course for free yeah and the families are like, mm, but that's not going to get them a job. Are they going to be able to earn enough in two, three years time? And yeah. so... How are they reacting now? now that this That's what I'm saying. Well? It's, it's the first year it's doing and all of them are studying other courses as well. So we've had to make allowances. They're, they're, they're taking the course, but they're not taking it fully. Mm. Um, they're doing their outside studies as well um, but hopefully it will we have a responsibility from our side basically to show that it is a career directed course mm -hmm. 
Um, and once we demonstrate that, it will become easier. There's a huge responsibility on us in the institution to actually show that, yes, we have high course fees, but there are jobs at the end of it. Yeah. And as long as we keep doing that, then it's worthwhile. If we don't, if it's an empty degree on that side, my bachelor's was an empty degree on that side. Yeah. There was never any talk or proper embedding throughout the study of it that this is actually going to be able to give you a career or earning or anything at the end of it. I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't even realize that was important at the time. It was a very he, different era as well. Yeah. Here, since arriving, it's been a constant, you need to demonstrate that these courses are going to give jobs. Was that a culture shock for you at the time? It wasn't so much of a shock. I, I could have expected it, mm -hmm. but it was something that I had to really think carefully about how to approach. Mm. Because you also don't want to lie and just be like, yes, it's fine. They will be fine. Yeah, um, the reputation of the institution will only last long term. So look, look, basically you're caught in the middle. You're, you're caught, you, you have to deliver hmm. protocol, live up to protocol while also being, remaining authentic to the students without any empty promises. And I know you're the kind of person who is incapable of delivering incapable, uh, empty promises. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's, you saw how the students' families would struggle to pay the tuition fees. Mm. And for a lot of them, they would. And it's like the last thing you want to do is build up false hopes on that. Exactly. And it's like you can't guarantee, you can't say 100% yes, they will succeed. Mm -hmm. We had to make sure that we were always delivering the most that we could to give them the circumstances they would need to succeed. Mm -hmm. Some of it has to come from them. Absolutely. Um, One could argue most of it has to come from them. But they need the environment and they need the right guidance and they need the right um, skills. And that our course is unusual on that side. It's like the skill set we provide the students is by no means a standard Western music course. Tell us more. The students enter without having had necessarily any prior training in Western music. Mm -hmm. They maybe have had some, they maybe haven't. They've maybe had Indian classical traditions. Mm -hmm. They maybe haven't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they have no idea of what music jobs are. Mm -hmm. The majority of our students enter because they like music mm. or they see themselves being the next AR right. or they see themselves being the next singer for AR. Gotcha. Um, so our first year of the course is not a degree course. It's a, in itself a bridging course. Nice. To Smart move. To try and kind of set a level playing field. Um, and they have to develop everything to a certain level. Mm -hmm. So the ones who are already capable in some areas, they can basically just focus on the areas that they, they have had no information before on. It's also hybrid course because they all have to learn Indian and Western traditions. Beautiful. And they all have to learn tech. Those, those are the three knowledge pillars that AR wanted instilled. Western, Indian, tech. Beautiful. 
Um, so all of the performers have a Western instrument and an Indian instrument. Um, they all have to learn studio basics. They all have to learn keyboard basics. They all have to learn voice basics. It's like they need to be rounded in that bass level knowledge. That sounds pretty badass, really. And in areas like performance, we advance them very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, we have students who are playing repertoire after one year, two years that they shouldn't be touching. And I still don't know whether that's a right move or not. Um, it works sometimes, it doesn't work at other points. There's obviously holes in their knowledge and technique and capabilities, but it's also necessary because they've lost so many of the younger years of learning instruments mm -hmm. for them to have any hope of um, achieving. It needed to be a very rapid progression in terms of their skills and capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and we've done insane things with that. It's like we have students who are studying at conservatoires after having only been playing their instrument for two, three years. That is insane. It's like that shouldn't happen. Um, and it's still too early to say whether long term it, it will work or not. Kenny Werner was recently on my podcast, right? And I put this in because it seems relevant. I remember him talking about how he always thought he could play piano. Like when the piano first arrived in his home, he as a kid went up to his, his mom and said, Hey mom, good news, I, I won't need a piano teacher. And needless to say, it's endearing, endearing story. Um, one may, many of us could relate to, but he says that mindset he carried all throughout his life that, hey, sure, I can do it, the can do. I mean, um, um, the can do hashtag is oversimplifying it, but there's just, just that general mindset of knowing that, sure, I can. And having an environment that supports that mindset, I personally would prefer to err on that side. And uh, personally, I'd be at the, uh, I'd like to believe I'm on your camp. Yeah, the other, in some ways, and it's like it's as much of a disadvantage as an advantage. But one of the advantages they have on that is their isolation, mm. because there aren't ten, twenty, thirty other institutes. There aren't huge numbers of rivals for them, mm. so the ones who are good here really are feeling like they are all that. Mm -hmm. And we know they aren't. It's like, it's, it, we drop you anywhere else in the world, it's like you're going to be distinctly average. But yeah. while they're here, they, they are all that. They are the highest of what is available in a huge radius. Mm -hmm. And it fuels that mindset, but it can make them very arrogant as performers also until oh, they... Until they get reality check from anywhere else. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, the isolation, it in many ways helps them to get over all of the struggles and battles that other performers get growing up inundated with competition. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, but it, 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 I think that one only helps up to a point and then it's like, no, you need to, mm. you need to realize that actually it's like the isolation you're in is making you feel much more comfortable about your abilities than necessarily you should. Well, I guess this will always be open to debate, but the way I see it, the response one chooses to go with once the reality check 
you know, happens, that's something no mentor can really influence anyways. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where your job kind of ends, you know. You've kind of given the bird a nest and when it when the time comes to fly, it's almost like parenting. Yeah. It, it really is parenting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point when adulthood knocks at the door, that's not your call anyway. No, no, it's, there you go. We've done what we can with you. Yeah. <laughs> go forth. <laughs> um, let's hone in a little on um, your personal journey and the sociocultural aspects with which you dealt with. I remember the first time I met you, was when India was in the middle of a political influx on the recriminalization of the whole three seven seven thing where yeah. where uh, what's how do you even say it? where uh, what well, technically being gay was illegal yeah and yeah it it was basically any sexual acts that were to not towards reproduction were illegal it's a it it's actually it's a victorian buggery law that is so funny i'm sorry and it is it 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 was basically the remnant of the british victorian buggery law pretty much i i i i don't know how appropriate my response to that that is so fucking hilarious (laughs) that is so hilarious and i remember us actually meeting at the time and i I could see how unsettling this very quirky development was it made no sense like where do you even begin to unpack that one you know you know it's it it was a unusual one because when i was first in india was when it had just 377 had been struck down by the Supreme Court. Right. So that process happened then. Then it but reared its ugly head back again. The court hadn't removed it. Mm. They had just said it's non-applicable. Mm, sounds like India. Now, from what I remember of it, what was happening was that the judge who had done that had was retiring and knew that unless it was actually removed, there was always the possibility that it could be brought back. And the only way for him to remove it was for him to remove his strike down of it so that the parliament could vote it out. The parliament wouldn't or couldn't touch it while it was struck down. So he brought it back in order for the parliament to remove it. But at that point, there was a change in parliament. Wow. If I remember my story correctly, <laughs> I might be wrong on that. I'm sure there's a lot more detail on that than, but that was the chain of events that happened that, and it landed back um, fully present. Do you remember how you felt at the time? How scary was it? It was unusual to think that essentially I had been criminalized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it. I, I'd always, particularly in the early years, been very aware of the cultural difference of being out and being open about my sexuality mm-hmm. while here. From various levels, one at a work level. It's like, will work accept that? Mm-hmm. Is it suitable being a lecturer, a higher education lecturer? And will that affect parents? Mm-hmm. and parents' decisions. So is it going to impact, essentially, the education environment? Mm-hmm. Socially, 
am I safe? <laughs> mm. um, how spoken about can it be? Mm. Um, and in the early years, it, it was as if essentially I reverted to a pre-coming out mindset. Mm. Um, my Facebook wasn't open publicly. I, my name was changed on Facebook at that point. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And it took a while for me to kind of navigate and work out my positioning here. Mm-hmm. A lot of that came down from being in actually quite a public relationship right. in the early years. Um, I was dating a fashion designer for two, three years. Mm-hmm. And we were both very present on the social scene of Chennai. And from that, we were being photographed at events. Columnists were writing about it. Mm-hmm. It was not something that was possible to hide. Um, but there was never any backlash on me on that. Mm-hmm. And that was the point when I realized that actually it's... For me, I was in a position of safety, essentially. Mm. The company I didn't get told off from. I wasn't getting warning signs in terms of don't mm-hmm. hide this more. It's, it's not acceptable. Gotcha. So I became more vocal. I started trying to see what I could do in terms of helping situations here. And I realized that in many instances, it was very little. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you can't come and impose ideas, ideals that I have from being brought up in the UK mm-hmm. onto what's happening here. <laughs> the bitter irony of it all being yeah. that ancient Indian culture was extremely open and vocal about all uh, forms of sexuality and uh, even about... Uh, gender identity, yeah. you know, uh, non-binary was not even a controversial topic. So it's, I don't even know when that, I mean, I don't have the skills to trace back the roots of... Victorian, being, it's a buggery loss. It is Victorian ideology. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. When you say it, I believe you. I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, In terms of the 377 journey on that side, which I think imposed a lot of the social norms against... I think it is, uh, the UK has a lot to answer for on those laws. Mm. And India is not the only country that has the buggery law in one form or another put in there. Mm -hmm. It gets twisted and joined in with other prevalent national identities and that's it. It takes on its own story. Mm. Um, But yeah, those were are still um, difficult memories, seeing how it affected people I knew, going through periods where large quantities of my friends were, and it's it's not even forced into marriage, it's just expected into marriage and accepting of it. and seeing how helpless they were to go against those levels of expectation. Yeah, just for my listeners to clarify, being coerced or forced into heterosexual marriage in spite yeah. of not being heterosexual. Sorry. Just to clarify. <laughs> no, no, no reason to apologize. I mean, I, I didn't think about it too, but for a lot of non-Indian 
folks, uh, they probably wouldn't know what that exactly means. So just to clarify, so these are people who are being forced into or wandering? Not forced, and that's the thing. It's, yeah. um, that's what makes it difficult is that very often... You're right. it's thanks, thanks, for, thanks for correcting me there, yeah. Doesn't, even to them, it doesn't feel forced. Yeah, exactly. That it feels the, expected. And so there's a resignation to it. And right. it was like, oh, I, yeah, I resignation, man. came at that point, I wanted to wage war. Mm. Literally, it's like, what can I yell at? What can I speak about? I have a voice in this. And it's like, it can't, mm. because it has to come from within the community here. Yeah. But there is such a acceptance within the community here that that is how things are. Mm. And if I look back in terms of gay rights struggles in other countries where the community does lash back, I don't see that here yet. I know, right? It, it just shows the huge gap between what the official protocol is and the actual reality is. It's, yeah. Here it's still actually almost more accepted. Mm, exactly. To have your dirty little secrets and keep them secrets, if that makes sense. Oh, that, okay. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I know. The resignation you refer to yeah. your own and the dirty little secrets, they kind of go hand in hand, yeah, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that is, uh, for me personally, even though not specifically in issues with um, LGBTQ rights, but um, I mean, India is in love with victimhood. It is, it thrives on its victimhood. And uh, and this is very controversial stuff I'm saying, but being playing the role of a victim is a very powerful position to actually operate from. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're living in a, an environment where, and this is the enraging part, where some actually probably don't have a choice yeah. to put up with it. But, uh, you know, but taking advantage of that and declaring yourself to be one of those people without actually taking a minute to see if you can take your own agency, that enrages the shit out of me, man. It's one of the, one of the repeating topics on this that... I've come back to time and time when discussing this with friends on the huge differences is just the mindset on the relation to family here different from our own, different from mine. Yeah, It's like half the things that I hear parents say and half of the responses that I see kids have to their parents here. It's like, if my parents said that to me, mm. A, I would have yelled at them, B, I would have walked out. Yeah. But that that response does not happen, yeah. cannot happen, will yeah. not happen yet. And then and frustratingly enough, in most cases, the people won't take a minute to ask themselves why they're putting up yeah. with it. You know, I mean, forget taking agency, but just, just taking a minute to asking themselves, why am I putting up with the toxic relationship exactly? Where exactly is the family worship serving my ecosystem. And um, even when it's not the parents, then it's the extended family or the neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in my case, it was the extended family, which gave me grief when I spent during the time I spent my uh, time here mostly. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, absolutely. It's fine. But it's like, I've never, I still don't understand I don't understand the responses to that. And I've never been able to really find anybody who's beyond just saying, no, it's just, that's how it is. It's like, it's so, it's just like, if anybody, I 
cannot believe on that side. It's like if a member of my extended family tried to impose anything on any of my life choices, yeah. A, they never would, but B, it's like, I don't care. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Yeah, it's, it's a fine line between a community and a mob. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, um, and, and, and that transition to, uh, can be so, so, it, it, it happens at the pace of lightning in India. You know, you don't, you don't know when a community yeah. is going to turn into a mob. You just don't see it coming. And it was in realizing how much that I can't understand that side of yeah. of society here that I realized that I couldn't turn into an angry aggressor in those situations. Mm -hmm. So it was like all of the the anger and wanting to do anything about it is just like I don't really understand sensitively enough what is going on here. Mm. I cannot be a provoker in these situations because it's it's too unstable. It's out with understanding and at that point mm -hmm. shifted much more to one of support. Mm -hmm. And it's like from then I will support, I will listen where it's needed, when people are needing help, when they've been, when they've lost their jobs because people have found out they're gay. Mm -hmm. It's like, if they need financial support through that, yes. If they're needing somewhere to stay, if they need somebody just to listen to talk to, yes. And I'm much happier in that situation at the moment because I, I just don't understand the core reasons behind so many of this when it's like just say no <laughs> let's, let's talk about the the support you've shown the lgbtq community you've almost kind of founded chennai's first no no, no? absolutely not okay um not at all um there are some wonderful organizations in chennai that have been running oh, okay. for more than a decade maybe nearly two decades can you name a few um i'm trying to <laughs> trying to go through the names. Orinam is one that is um, very active. Chennai Dost, another one that's been very active. There's three or four, there's more coming up now. Mm -hmm. And generally they're all from different segments of society as well. Some more focused towards trans, some more focused towards men. Mm -hmm. um, I probably don't support them as much as I should. Um gotcha. But yeah, it's it's a lifetime calling. It's like a whole different job. It's more being aware that they're there and directing people to them as and when is required. Yeah. In terms of personal support, that's just that's my my social network, my group of people that I know when they need help. I have organized some events in the past, um, two quite high profile ones with the British High Commission, actually. Mm. The Deputy High Commissioner um, about five, six years ago was really wanting to support the community mm -hmm. and was like, let's just have an event in the house. So he just opened his house and we basically just had a big gay party in his house. Awesome. Um, but it's, it, it was more than that, obviously. And that he had members from so many segments of the community there. And I love the images and the pictures from that event because literally you've got Indian flag, UK flag, gay flag, picture of the queen. 
And there's a party I would like to. <laughs> um, um, uh, sorry, did I interrupt you? Keep going. You talk very openly about your privileges as a white male in India. Tell us more about that. I mean, uh, it's, it's one thing finding yourself in the midst of a political debate where all of a sudden homosexuality, for lack of a better term, is criminalized. But you've also talked about how uh, you've, correct me if I'm wrong, had um, VIP treatment. Oh, in God, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and which made it easier if, for you to navigate certain waters. Um, <laughs> Makes it easier to get in anywhere. <laughs> there's that. No, there is still, I mean, Chennai is not a multinational city in that way, in the way that London is. Yeah. You do not see that many international people walking around on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's there, but it's like nowhere near as diverse as most cosmopolitan cities would be suggested. Mm-hmm. That's not That doesn't mean that white people are unusual here, mm-hmm. but it's just not as common as you would expect for a multinational city. Mm-hmm. There are still huge um, hang-ups in some ways of 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 white supremacy. Mm-hmm. This is no other easier way of saying it. Unfortunately, I'm going to entirely mince my words through all of this. Yeah, no, but it's this like is the podcast we are treated differently, mm-hmm. normally as being superior, mm-hmm. as in requiring extra attention or being more important, incorrectly often. Mm. Not always, occasionally we are ostracized from it, as in not understanding the community or mm. not understanding what's happening in certain situations. So we're, we're forbidden from being in those circumstances. Festivals, things like that, it's like, you just won't get it, so no. But mm. nine times out of ten, it's a case of you're white, therefore you are allowed to be here, you are allowed to do what you want. And that goes from VVIP events right down to being taken into people's houses at funerals to see what's happening. Wow. When you have no idea who these people are. <laughs> um, it's it's very odd on that side. It's, do you remember the first time you... Was there a specific event where it really hit you? Um, I remember recognizing it first at a Radio Mirchi event 2011. This was my first time going to a, a kind of event event. Mm-hmm. KM was performing at it. Mm-hmm. I was still very green here. I had no idea what was going on. And so I'd just been told to go to the, the event and turn up. And I did. Mm. Um, and it was in a, one of the big stadiums. And obviously there's multiple entrances. So I wander up to the entrance and get told I'm at the wrong entrance. Mm. Um, and so get pointed to the next one. I go to the next one, still at the wrong one. And I was like, what entrance is like, this is the VIP entry. Go to the next one. Mm. The next one that they pointed me towards was the VVIP entry. And, you know, There's a VVIP? VVIP entry. Jesus. I went to, I was like, no, next one. MIP. What's MIP? So I had Most been, important person. Yeah. Jesus. And I had been shuffled from entrance 
to most important person's entrance. Now, in the space of the shuffle from moving me from one entrance to the next, that took 40, 45 minutes for me to actually work out what door I was supposed to enter the building from. Mm. Because I had no idea. It wasn't like I was on a named list. It wasn't like I was an invited guest for this event. I was just turning up because I'd been told to. Mm. But they saw they saw the white person coming in and it's like, no, you have that entrance. Wow. That is, how do you feel? How did it's it make? ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous because on the other side, it totally mean, meant that I was like 45 minutes late to getting in because I couldn't get in the right door. <laughs> yeah, it's also the kind of tension you're not always feeling up for depending on, yeah. you know, I can imagine it can be uh, yeah. quite uncomfortable yeah as well and it's it is it's 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 ridiculous a lot of the time also because again people try to do things for you when you don't want them to mm. and it it leaves yeah it's it's just weird and wacky and it's like i'm i'm not going to lie i have used it to my advantage at mm -hmm. points mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but no it's it's very present and present in a way that I've never experienced elsewhere um, yeah I, I'd say uh, I mean even after 22 years of living in Central Europe in one of the most passive aggressive racist countries in the world I still say I think the worst forms of racism I've faced are still in India in a very indirect way in a manner where you can't even pinpoint it and you can't even say hey you were just racist to me because you know the amount of no one's even close to understanding what's going on but some of time. the worst forms that i see here are north south divide indeed i find indeed. india to be most racist against itself no exactly <laughs> i rest my case and it's Technically, I'm the ex-colonial power invading here. I'm the one that should be answering for the mm. sins of forebears and everything else. And it's mm. like I, I'm treated like the MIP. Mm. And there's arguments going on between North and South in terms of where people have, where people come. Cost, cost system. I can't believe that thing actually is a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, this is my privilege talking, but uh, you know, I, I literally, I've, I've just, I have no orientation with the something like the caste system actually still playing a genuine role in society. That's been my culture shock, and uh, that is my privilege speaking to to have the luxury of the oblivion I've had these past two decades to something that that actually existed. Um, is also so quite a slap in the face sometimes, but um, that's exactly it. Um, it. That that whole roundabout <sighs> dynamic. It's quite a lot to wrap. Uh, it's <laughs> the amount of energy that you drained of, right? But um, we we are about the positive here. <laughs> so so let's talk about um, uh, be before we taper off. We're coming towards the end. What's the solution here? What what, what can we do? Uh, I, th I think, and, and I told you this, but I want this to be on the record. I think the very fact that we can have this conversation is the, in this day and age, we can talk about things like colonialism and oppressor and victim. And I can talk about my ancestral country's uh, love affair with victimhood. It's just um, an enormous 
step forward, our parents could never have this conversation. Maybe my mom, if uh, she, uh, she she probably would manage one. But uh, <laughs> if I use parents, uh, I don't know what your parents were. Actually, I shouldn't be uh, making a blanket statement. But let's just say one generation would be nowhere close to being equipped to have this conversation. We are having one, and that's, I think that's pretty fucking awesome. How do we best collaborate, like uh, hypothetically, to contribute to the betterment of the system? I've always and. I say this both from in terms of idea development as well as creative development. Mm -hmm. It's all about creating spaces where the conversations can happen mm. for me. Mm. KM is a creative space. Mm -hmm. I don't really care that much in terms of what teaching is going on in here as long as the environment is the right kind of positive creativity mm -hmm. and the same with these kind of discourses and conversations is creating the spaces that they can happen in and whether that is yeah having them in the uk high commission's house which is not under indian jurisprudence but under uk jurisprudence mm -hmm. whether that is finding the the bars and the cafes and the other houses that, that people are feeling comfortable enough to be able to speak openly. Mm. It's, I, I find so much of this in terms of space. And it's so like, true. I look at, from a queer side, I look at something like Manchester mm -hmm. and how Canal Street was built as a safe space, a safe mm. environment. And the reason why that came about in terms of people being ostracized and being kicked out, mm. I don't find that here. Mm -hmm. I don't find enough of the fact that there are safe and dedicated and protected spaces that are being protected by their own communities mm. to, to allow these kind of conversations and openly without retribution, these kind of conversations to happen. Even in younger generations? Still no. Not, not enough. Mm. Um, not enough. You take Chennai, you look at the, there's no, there's no gay bar in Chennai. Oh. Now that's only one example, but it's like still for a city of over six million people. Yeah. And there's no dedicated space. There are events, it happens, it's transient, it moves. An underground. It's not underground, no? but it's not fixed. It, right. It's progressed okay. away from being underground where it, it's, it doesn't have to be hidden, mm -hmm. but it's not been given permanence, not permanent location. Transient moves, has to be somewhere different each time. It doesn't have its own stable space yet. So it's just about tolerated but not accepted. Yeah, and it, it's creating those spaces. You said yourself yesterday, the atmosphere in KM is one of creativity. Mm -hmm. and that is one that was designed to be created here. Yeah. You haven't sat in on any of the classes or teaching that's going on. You don't need to, to know that this building has a discourse and dialogue going on that is creatively positive. Mm. But it's the space creation that's done that. Yeah. I mean, kudos for both uh, Mr. Rahman and you folks for running this place. It is one of a kind and uh, need this just to uh, a force to reckon with uh, for energizing this positive hmm. movement. So, what do you say when I ask you the, the best manner to contribute 
it would be to try and create safe spaces. Yeah. And they can be different kind. I mean, they need to be different kinds of, of safe mm. spaces. Mm. It's, it's, people need places where they are comfortable to say what they need or want to say. Or, yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. What's the best way to support your work, Adam? Both you and the KM. <laughs> Share messages of what KM is doing on that side. It's we're still very unknown countrywide. <laughs> Surprisingly. Surprisingly indeed, because I've, um, I've seen the work that's being done here. I've, but I've seen the students being churned out as well. It needs to be talked about a lot. Oh, mm -hmm. Keep going, sorry. No, no, that's it. It's like my work is this. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's support music. That's it. We will keep on churning out the musicians. <laughs> yeah. It's about as simple and complex as that. And that's all it needs. It's like literally the more people who know what we're doing here, the more people that we will be able to educate and train in a as positive manner as possible. Mm. We have an alumni network across the country now that several hundred music educators that have mm. come out of here who are working in various places across the country and it's they've had a type of training which helps them to teach better for the next generation. And it's that kind of mm grassroots up that that will be it will change the way that um music and the arts is running here it already has yeah it al there's already a generation out there making that change I, i mean i notice i see it happening some of the conversations i've had with students here uh uh this time are already at a different level than they were last yeah. 10 years back so i see it happening You're an absolute sweetheart. <laughs> And thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making this happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, for my listeners who don't know, I just did a micro-residency here, which Adam made all happen. <laughs> And um, yeah. I'm glad we waited to do this in person. Yeah. We, we nearly did it online. And we nearly did. And uh, to be fair, these on, the online ones have been pretty awesome too. They come yeah. with their, both come with pros and cons. But this, yeah, definitely. I mean... Uh, It's been uh, in alignment to the rest of the, the recent past, so uh, I'm very, very glad we didn't put this in person as well. Thank you. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. Well, having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in.